0: Morning grace bible church. Good, you're livelier than the more uh, earlier service. That's good. That means you're more holy, right? Or the other hour was too early. It is a joy for me to open the word of God alongside you today. Please go with me to the what I intentionally called after I heard Dr. Peter Gaiman teaching the class and two weeks ago the first testament intentionally, first testament and the second testament, but go to the first Testament. I think we don't go there too often, so I want to take you there and explore what God has spoken there. Go with me to the minor prophets and within them to the longest of the three post-exilic prophets, Zechariah, the other two being Haggai and Malachi. Because this is an introductory message to these series, we'll spend a good amount of time laying the background Also, I thought we were going to be able to cover the first six verses of chapter one. Uh, But after studying and as I was going halfway through, I noticed, no, I'm not, we're not. So we'll stay in the first half. So this will be part one of this message. So bear with me. The post-exilic prophets focus on the restoration after coming from captivity. And Zechariah, in particular, helps the reader have in mind, and I quote, God's future program on account of his covenant promises to Israel's forefathers, end quote. Now, in a nutshell, the theme of Zechariah is preparation for Messiah. It is a beautiful book with much expectation on the coming Messiah and his kingdom. As we will see, it is very important and very relevant for us today. Zechariah means Yahweh remembers, and we'll get back to this later. But this fact alone, in addition to what Zechariah will himself speak and proclaim, served as a constant reminder of who was the one who had chosen Israel. God remembers his promises, his covenants, his word, and his people. He never changes, and he is worthy of trust. The beauty of it is that it is the same God that has chosen us, giving us hope and a new life. When while we, were yet, while we were yet sinners, it is the same God that gives us grace and forgiveness and eternal love. The God that seeks us and changes our hearts. It's a beautiful book. Sorry, it's a beautiful book that in it we'll see the same God that will fulfill everything He has promised. And wants us to be an active part of what he is doing to bring glory to his name and joy to his peoples. Zechariah is one of my favorite books in the Bible. And as I was thinking about saying this, because I'm excited on talking about this book. But as I was reflecting, I always say that whenever I start studying a book. It's exciting. It's God's word. Any book that we open, it's exciting. What not to love about his word. But I know because you're asking, you're craving to know... I need to tell you which are my favorite books in the the First Testament. I'm particularly fond of Deuteronomy, Psalms, Isaiah, Daniel, Habakkuk, and Zechariah. I know you were asking. You can check it off of your list. So, uh, anyways, to start us off, we need to understand the background of the book of Zechariah to help us understand the book in itself. That's why you'll see in the presentation a lot of pictures to help us not get bored of all the details and dates that I will tell you. That's a joke. Um... It's just like Pastor Bart's (laughs) jokes. The book of Zechariah is part of the group called the Minor Prophets. Named as such, not because of the extension, sorry, not because of the importance of it, but because of the extension, because of the length, significantly shorter than uh, the major prophets, as they would call them, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. According to the biblical text itself, Zechariah dates his message by references to the Persian king Darius, who ruled the Persian empire from 522 to 486 BC. The prophet Zechariah is introduced as the son of Edo, apparently one of the priests that initially returned to the land with Zerubbabel, according to Nehemiah 12. The Hebrews had been allowed to return to their land after their time of captivity was over. You know, it was 70 years. Isaiah 41 and 2 had prophesied that just as the captivity would be certain, so would be the end of it. For 39 chapters, Isaiah was pounding on repent, repent, and tomorrow repent, and the next day repent, repent, repent. Verse 39 is like, well, oh boy, is the guy... You messed up, you are going to captivity. But at the same time that he was offering that judgment was coming and that he was telling them that it was certain to happen, there was the hope of restoration. There was the hope of that there was going to be an end of it. After 39 chapters of Isaiah pounding on it, chapter 40 offers hope. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly with love to Jerusalem and cry to her that her, her sorry, warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord hands double for all her sins. The Persian king Cyrus ruled the Persian Empire prior to Darius from 539 to 529 BC. Issued a decree in 538 BC to let the people go and rebuild. The time was over. We find this account both in 2 Chronicles 36 and in Ezra chapter 1. I'll read Ezra. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, listen, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. So whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. He's clarifying. And let its survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with so he, silver and gold, with, go, well, sorry, with goods and with beasts besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. End quote. Not only did Cyrus recognize all of this was God's plan. He is recognizing there that it was God's plan. But God himself had spoken about it through Isaiah as well. In verse, chapter 44 Verse 28, sorry, but I'll start reading in verse 24. It says, Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretches out the heavens, who spread out the earth by himself. The Lord is reminding Israel who he is. He's in control. He's in charge of everything. And as we will see in, uh, in Zechariah, he is a Lord of hosts. Verse 28 of Isaiah says, Who says of Cyrus. He is my shepherd of Cyrus. He is my shepherd. And he shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built. And of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. God had already spoken about this restoration. Cyrus did what God had planned to do through him. And according to Ezra chapter 2, around 50,000 people left under Zerubbabel's leadership between 538 and 537 B.C. Nevertheless, as one commentator put it, the people struggled to restore their identity and proper worship of Yahweh. And even if eventually they did build a scaled down temple, because it was not like the majestic Solomon's temple, but it was a second inferior temple, they remained weak and under Persian domination. Therefore, the return to the land after the exiled hardly signaled a return. To The old days of blessing in the promised land. That was not it, as explained in Deuteronomy 28. If you read Deuteronomy 28, and we'll get to it in the second part of this sermon one day, um, um, We'll, we'll see how the Lord had spoken already about the two times of affliction and how He had already warned them about it. Ezra 3 8 through 13 affirms the initial group completed the foundation of the temple in 536 BC. But Ezra 4 describes the different obstacles that they had to face, up to a point that they, they just stopped. They just stopped. Besides that, when Zechariah spoke, not everyone had returned, really. Not everyone was interested in returning. And they were not faithful to Yahweh. In the words of two Old Testament scholars, selfishness crippled community spirit. Quote, and the general mood of the period was gloomy and dismal. The city walls still lay in ruins. The temple of God remained a rubble heap, and drought and blight ravaged the land, end quote, among other things. Because of the chaos, then, God raised two prophets, Haggai first and a few months later, Zechariah, to ensure that Jerusalem would be rebuilt and awakened. Both prophets started their prophetic ministries around 16 years after the first group arrived. So it's year 520 B.C. now. And worship needs to be reinstated. And people needed to be challenged and encouraged and reminded of who God is and who they were him, before Him. Sorry, Zechariah then urges them to obey. He urges them and he points them to the benefits and blessings that would entail if they would just obey the Word of God. He urges them to work hard for the Lord and points them to the way Yahweh would one day complete what he started. Bringing all his plans and promises to fruition. As Zechariah mentions in the last chapter, chapter 14, verse 9. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And that day the Lord will be one. And his name one. That's the direction we're going. That's the messianic and eschatological hope that Zechariah is trying to build so as to motivate people to obey and make, wake them up. Hey, guys, you just spent these 70 years in captivity. You need to wake up and obey the Lord. Zechariah's message was one of rebuke, exhortation, and encouragement. But it was, and it is Zechariah, if you read Haggai and then Zechariah. Zechariah is more verbose, more encouraging as well because of that scatological fulfillment that he is trying to lay out for the people. God used these two special characters, these two special prophets, to fulfill the construction of the second temple. The temple that Jesus walked through, as Ezra 6.14 confirmed. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Edo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And his house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. This temple would eventually be known as Herod's temple because of the refurbishings that Herod the great did. This temple stood up between 516 BC until the Romans destroyed it in AD 70. Then, uh, just to if we'll go to the next slide, you'll, see, you'll be able to see the outline of both the book and the first section that we will not go through them. If you want to take a picture or ask me for it, I can email them to you. So, God's Pep Talk, that's the title. A Warning to Take Heed. A warning to take heed. A pep talk is usually brief, intense, and emotional talk designed to influence or encourage an audience. You've seen pep talks in sports, in wars, in sales trainings, perhaps? I still remember my mom telling me if I ever got hit by a car crossing the street because I was crossing carelessly, that she would then pick me up and discipline me herself. Of course, I am abbreviating it and smoothening it out to make it more civilized than it was. (laughs) Don't tell her I said that. Uh, Well, but here's another example of a pep talk in a similar fashion. The first game this guy called Chip ever played in professional baseball, the coach walked him to the mound, slapped him on the back, and said, that's why I slap you guys on the back, if I... and said, we have two men on base. You get them out, I won't put you back on a plane tonight. Throw the ball. Throw hardship. He was only 18 years old. Basically, he said, man up. Get me out of this mess. Possibly the least motivating speech ever. I don't know the result, but I'm hoping that it worked. Anyways, God, through Zechariah, gives the people returning from captivity this massive pep talk. In some, he's saying, and this will be our main points today, and yes, I know it's a warning for Judah. But dear brothers and sisters, take it as a warning for you guys as well. For us. Number one, Yahweh's blunt but hopeful warning, repentance will surely result in blessing. Yahweh's difficult but timely reminder, rebellion will result in tragedy. We'll only cover the first point today, as I mentioned. So, If you will, stand with me if you're able. Stand with me as we read our text for today. Zechariah 1, 1 through 6. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, The Lord was very angry with your fathers. Therefore say to them, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts. I will return to you, says The Lord, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Do not be like your fathers to whom the former prophets cried out. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Return from your evil ways and from your evil deeds. But they did not hear or pay attention to me, declares the Lord. Your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not overtake your fathers? So they repented and said, "As the Lord of Hosts purposed to deal with us for our ways and deeds, so has He dealt with us." You may be seated. So God's pep talk, a warning to take heed. Repentance will result in blessing. Maybe you are wondering why I title, title uh, this sermon like this, "God's pep talk." Well, I kind of explained it already, but this is not your typical epistolary greeting that you will find in the second testament is not saying grace to you dear judah the lord loves you and i am thankful for you only just be careful with this stuff nor is it like a mother and seeker friendly preacher saying god wants to bless you and has a wonderful plan for your life but it rather goes straight into the juggler vein i don't know if i'm pronouncing it well but well this the very dangerous vein if you're if your juggler vein is cut, it would take you around three minutes to bleed out and die if your head is laying flat. God's message through His emissary is like a juggler cut. It is blunt, but it is hopeful. It's a real pep talk to motivate them to obey. God wants the returning exiles and the the ones who haven't returned yet to know that repentance will result in blessing. There's no time to chit-chat. There's no time for breaking the ice. They need to act now. God wanted them to know about the hope that is found only in His Word and in His promises. He wanted them to live fulfilling lives, living for Him, working for Him, serving Him with the messianic and eschatological hopes in their horizons. This is not just a pep talk for the mere sake of, Let's do it, and let's build a great temple. Zechariah, verse 1, Zechariah writes in the eighth month, in the second year of Darius. That is late October or early November, the year 520 B.C. We have talked about Darius in the introduction as well as his predecessor, Cyrus. Darius reconfirmed their religious liberty as well and authorized them to keep building, as it had been seen in Ezra 6. Just for the sake of precision, Darius was not the immediate successor of the throne. But Cyrus' son, called Cambyses II, was in the throne from 530 to 522 B.C. After his father's tragic death in battle. Then Zechariah 1.1 continues saying, The word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Edo, saying. So, a few observations. First, what I find interesting about this is the Lord is doing the seeking. It is the Lord seeking them. It says the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah. This is not like oh and they were crying out and they they ripped their clothes clothes and then they were crying and they didn't know what to do so they were seeking the Lord for guidance. No, it doesn't say that. It is the Lord who had the initiative as it always is. I mean, they were not really seeking God's will. They were not trying to honor him through hardship. Or trying to ask for his help. They just stopped building. They were hopeless. But God always God, in the Garden of Eden. Or with the prophets before the captivity. Or here in Jerusalem after the captivity. He is the one seeking his people. Really interested in them. Willing to keep his commandments and his word. In spite of repeated sin. Second observation. The Lord through his prophet Zechariah makes sure to identify his messenger. It says he was a prophet called by God to be his spokesman. So his name means Yahweh remembers. And this is important. This is not arbitrary. God really remembered his covenant with his people. They had been disciplined. They had been released. And he still had a plan with them. Not because of their performance, but because of his covenant love. He was communicating with them and seeking them. The text also identifies him more clearly not only with a proper name but also mentioning two relatives the fact that god mentions his uh, ancestors in the book is also important why well because god's faithfulness is put in display even in the little details and that speaks a lot about our inerrant word word that god left left for us it helps us treasure it more these are not fictional characters Not invented stories. They are real with dates and names and verifiable data and places. The question is, did Zechariah had two fathers? Because that's what the text says. What's going on here? Well, it's important. Details matter. God is communicating something. For starters, the fact that the prophet is so clearly identified, sorry as opposed to other prophets that were just barely identified by their name or something, that helped him connect Zechariah with the past. Like, he was someone. He knew what was going on. This is just not a random arbitrary guy that God was using. Zechariah's father, according to verse 1, was Berechiah. And his grandfather, according to Nehemiah twelve sixteen and Ezra 5, 1, was Edo. This is not an, uncom- an uncommon thing in genealogies. I mean, skipping the name of the father and co- calling the grandfather father, or like in here, calling the son, or calling him son of both. The Hebrew name for son can be used or can be translated as son, grandson, or as descendant. Nehemiah 12.1 describes the priests and Levites who came up with Zerubbabel. And Edo was one of them. Zechariah, Zechariah was probably born in captivity and came back to the land with Zerubbabel and Edo. Then in verse 16, Zechariah's name appears. Identifying him as one of the priests. So that means that Zechariah was not only a prophet, but was also a priest, which is important because of all the matters of worship and the temple that he is going to mention. He was really knowledgeable in all of that. Sometimes, something that I, I really found fascinating, and you'll, you'll, have, you'll have it there, is what happens when you put together the names of the three relatives. This is not chance. This is not like, oh, that's cool that your parents are called cool like that. Oh, wow, that's amazing. What a surprise. This is intentional. The Lord is doing this very intentionally. Zechariah means the Lord remembers. Berechiah means the Lord blesses. Edom means timely. So some Old Testament scholars believe that they mean the following. And I quote, the Lord remembers and the Lord will bless at the set time, at the appointed time, which in a sense, it is the theme of the book. If this is true and accurate, and I believe so, because God does not waste details. God is telling them, even in the little details and the little words, what He plans on doing. There is hope. He hasn't forgotten. He still remembers. He wants to bless them. He wants to fulfill His covenant with them. He's not done with them. He's faithful and wants to bless them in His time. But there were some amendments to do. Now going into verse 2. The Lord was very angry with your fathers. This is a short phrase that communicates a lot. For starters, a uh, literal translation of that phrase will be something like Yahweh was angry against your fathers/ancestors with anger. The Hebrew is emphasizing a lot because the was angry part of the translation in Hebrew is really fronted which means it is the predominant thought. It is very emphatic. It is emphasizing a strong feeling, a predominant sentiment in there. They were demotivated. This is a slap in their face. Man up. Wake up. For the Lord to say that he was angry with anger, he uses a combination of words that intensify the feeling, implying a strong indignation. Hebrew actually allows for that, not our languages, which only allow for us to perhaps add more adjectives. And you can say, I'm very, 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 very angry. Here it says, I am angry with anger. It's a very passionate and vivid way in saying how angry was he. Because a holy God must deal with sin. There's no way around it. He needs to confront them. What God just addressed to the prophet would have reminded them of the 70 years of captivity and the many warnings that they received before. The covenant-keeping God reminds them with those words. How them and their fathers had to go through captivity because of their sin. Remember, they were demotivated. They were going in the wrong path themselves as well. So for the sake of argument, Yahweh reaches out to them because He loved them and He always warned them. This is His pep talk towards them, the motivational conversation that they needed to happen. It's important to notice that the Bible doesn't hide God's anger, which could be defined as His displeasure with sin and with sinners. This is righteous anger. But still, this is something that we don't like to talk about Don't mention a lot that God has a displeasure for sinners and for sin. It is extremely offensive to Him. This is surely no secret sensitive talking, but pure and straight confrontation. Sometimes we can be shallow and go around the bushes without addressing the real problem. Well, God doesn't, and Zechariah certainly doesn't. But it's worse. Haggai is more direct God takes sin seriously. But what had their fathers done? Second Chronicles verse 15 says, The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on people, on his people and on his dwelling place. But, verse 16, They kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against the people, his people, until there was no remedy. The Lord then had to carry out His judgment upon them, sending them to exile, destroying everything they had. As a commentator put it, quote, the passage contains a rather thinly veiled threat that should the people of Judah continue in their sin, God might punish them again severely. Consequently, the people of God should fear God's holiness and respond accordingly. While often implicit, the theme of divine anger reappears forcefully in the book of Zechariah, as we will continue to see, end quote. Now, going to verse 3, Therefore say to them, this is what the message the Lord is trying to convey, Thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, And I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. This verse is bold, is direct, and there's repetition, which should matter to us. It is important in Hebrew when there's repetition. If you think about what was happening, as I mentioned in the introduction, it is impressive how quickly the former exiles forgot the reason that they went to exile. The Lord had to send both Zechariah and Haggai to rebuke them for their spiritual condition as well as the construction of the temple. If you remember, if you remember morale was low, they were intimidated. They had lost track of who they were and what they were supposed to do to the point that even the construction, the construction of the temple was stopped. It amazes me because we are like them. We tend to forget easily. If you read Psalm 103, I love Psalm 103 because I'm, I forget. And I need to remind myself, don't forget about His benefits, about His blessings. This is why the Lord is reaching out to them reminding them of the past, so that it serves as a wake-up call and a warning. After being made captive 70 years, which was the worst thing that could happen to them, you would expect it to be different. But it wasn't. Also relevant to understand is the fact that not everyone had returned. Only a small remnant wanted to return. People just were used to being in Babylon. They had gotten used to be away from where they belonged leaving behind their own identity. They were either comfortable or they really got accustomed to living a godless life. They just probably didn't didn't want to start again. All of this only illustrates how far apart were they from the Lord. Exile, unfortunately, did not change their hearts. Only a remnant rejoiced and valued what they were given back. Finally, because before of serving closely God's request to them, also the priests, were not, they were not interested in coming back. And this is sad because they were the ones that should lead the people instil, instilling in them a desire to start sacrifices and ask forgiveness to God, but they were simply not interested, even if the king uh, gave them special benefits to go back. And Zechariah's intention was to awaken them and to move them to action, repenting from their sins and seeking the Lord and His will pointing them to the scatological hope that awaited to God's children. Verse 3, I'll read it again. Therefore say to them, thus declares the Lord of hosts, Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to, return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Therefore means in light of the aforementioned, the Lord says the following. The basis of God's call to them was not their performance It was not what they had done or what they did not do. Yahweh, the unchanging one, the immutable one, is reminding them of who he is and who they are. Moreover, he describes himself here as Yahweh Sabaoth, translated as the Lord of hosts. And you can see an image there, I think. Something which has military connotations. He is the supreme over the heavens, is what he's saying. He repeats that verse alone three times, or that portion, or that explanation three times. He's the one that had taken them into captivity. It was not another nation. It was him who controls, who is sovereign, who is in control. They had been warned, as Jeremiah 3.12 reminds us. It says, return faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger. For I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. And he was not. He had reestablished them. Though that was not the completion of it. Though their hearts were away. They, they had come back from captivity. And he was not angry with them. He was warning them how. They could go into that same position. Because they were not repentant. Yahweh had always been urging them to return to him. When they've been afar because of sin and return is an imperative which means to return to repent or in this context to become devoted to once more to become devoted to once more it is to the fountain of eternal blessing that god is urging them to go back to it's not about the land it's not about the temple in itself it's about god himself it is to god personally that they needed to do that return to me it says not only return Zechariah was communicating not only the need to rebuild the temple, but behind all of that was the restoration of the relationship with him, was the restoration of proper worship, was the restoration of bringing their hearts back to God. They had drifted. They had lost track. They needed this pep talk. They needed to be reminded that God, who doesn't change, that is what Yahweh means the Eternal One, the Unchangeable One, the Immutable One, had called them, had loved them, had plans for them and for the whole world in the messianic and eschatological fulfillments. And while the approach will involve repentance, which is always uh, appropriate in man's approach to God, the primary emphasis is on establishing a personal relationship. Relationship. That is Old Testament's message of conversion. It is coming back to Him. It's not so much coming back to the land or having a nice temple or all these things. That's the blessing. That's everything pointed back to Him, to a relationship with Him, to a restoration and revival of their spiritual lives. Zechariah's plea also reminded his audience of Isaiah's prophecy. In Isaiah 10.21... Isaiah had said, a remnant will return. But notice this, the remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. Yes, it pointed to their return from the land. But the most important thing is that they would return to him. This was not it yet. Isaiah is a message of both judgment and grace. As judgment, the prophecy foretells the demise of the nation and the deportation of Judah as an expression of grace the remnant theme promises that God will remember his covenant with his people and ultimately restore them prophet uses return twice it says return and I will return the initial mention of it indicates repentance indicates a change of life not so much return to the land it's like hey all of you that haven't come back come back in a sense it is, but the most important thing as we have seen in Isaiah, as we have seen in the text itself, is come back to me. The second time it is mentioned it is an expression of grace because the remnant theme promises that God will remember his covenant with his people and ultimately will restore them. The whole terminology in this section is portraying Yahweh as the ruler the one in control, the one who had judged them, and the one who had extended much mercy and grace. Yahweh had made an unconditional covenant with them, the Abrahamic covenant found in Genesis 15, which is what prompts him to reach out, urging them to return to him. The unconditional covenant had promised them the land, the seed, and the blessing, and they were possessors, legal possessors, that is, of it. And yet they were not enjoying those blessings. Blessings. They were not enjoying the blessings they had because of sin. And that pointed them back to the conditional Mosaic covenant. So in a similar fashion with us today, they did not need to repent to become His nation. They were already His nation. They had identity. They had purpose. This is why God sent Haggai and Zechariah. They are doing it to enjoy or possess or experience what they already own. They had to rebuild the temple and restore worship, as Zechariah would say later in chapter 4, verse 6. It is not by might, it is not by power, but it's by my spirit. It is impossible then to experience the strength of God if you are out of fellowship with Him. Yahweh wanted them to return to Him, to swear allegiance to Him alone. And to obey His commandments. They were going to finish the temple and restore proper worship. Most importantly, their hearts and affections had to be oriented toward Him fully without division. God was calling them upon Him, urging them to come back with Him, to trust Him with their eyes set upon him to his plans and to his purposes. Yahweh wanted them to fully enjoy the blessings of being in allegiance with him because they are abiding in him and his word and his promises and his character without unconfessed sin, disobedience that would only separate them from God, making them miserable and bringing judgment upon them, stealing the joy of being In communion with a most holy God. The first three verses, Yahweh has given given a blunt but hopeful warning. Repentance will result in blessing. And maybe you look at me today and say, well, I'm not Israel, I'm not Judah. That's great, awesome history lesson. Uh, I don't have a temple to rebuild. Yes, that's true. But there are ways in which we can apply this text today. For starters, I don't think there's, that any of us can affirm that there is no sin from which we can repent today. Surely we can all recognize that we have not been loving the Lord our God with all our might, that we have not been serving Him with all our strength, and absolutely loving everything He loves and despising everything He despises. So would you today meditate on this? and Let the Spirit of God work through His Word to show you the atrocity of your own sin against the Lord from disobedience to bitterness from, pa- from pride to arrogance from immorality to hatred from jealousy to slander to anything that misses God's mark maybe you've been struggling with a particular sin that is about to destroy you it has been eating you and when you read about Judah's sin you really look at yourself in the mirror it's been so long that you've forgotten who you are in Christ and who is your God who saved you. Or maybe you're hiding behind a bunch of excuses today, even as you sit here and smile, but you've left the, cir- let the circumstances of life, hardships, difficulties to rob you of the joy of your salvation, to lose track of what God has called you to do, to do the work of the ministry in the church body that God has placed you in. Brother, sister, I urge you to return to the Lord so that He might return to you. Don't let unrepentant sin today make your life miserable, but do come to Him, to the fountain of everlasting life. Find forgiveness, grace, and peace. Come to Him, honor Him, serve Him, worship Him. Is your Christian life simply bland? Have you ever tried bland chicken? That's the worst. (laughs) Is your Christian life like bland chicken? Just, eh? You don't seek the Lord. You don't feel, you don't feed yourself with the Word. You don't enjoy the salvation He has given you. You don't enjoy your fellow members of the body in Christ. Are you here today just out of routine, but feeling absolutely nothing? Just because it's the right thing to do? As we worship today, corporately, in song, did you, like Hannah in 1 Samuel 1.15, poured out your soul before the Lord, recognizing that He is worthy of all honor and praise, or you just open your mouth and repeat it like a parrot? I can be like that sometimes. That's why I'm saying it. Or is it only the Chiefs or K-State or the likes, the only ones that deserve your passion? and care, and excitement, and joy? Surely sometimes it feels like we do that. Or maybe He has called you to serve Him, but as Mark 4:19 says, you've let the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the calling God has made you. Are you wasting your life making money for you or someone else running the rat race? Or are you truly loving Him? Not living for work, but working to live for Him and His glory, thus making much of Him? If you're listening today and you acknowledge that truly you are not a child of God and you don't have this hope, the hope of everlasting life, that you have not been saved by grace, through faith, faith in Christ alone, then today can be the day of your salvation. Repent and surrender. Cry out to God to save you so that He can be your Savior and Lord so that you no longer live enslaved to sin but live for Him. So I invite you to stand so that we can pray. You can stand. Let us pray to the Lord together. That's why I ask you to stand before singing. Let us react. Let us ask the Lord to forgive us. Let us ask him to have mercy on us. Pastor Hadley will close us in song as we reflect on our rock and redeemer. Dear Lord, God Almighty, Yahweh, Sabaoth, we cry out to you as our only God, our redeemer, and our rock. Lord, We recognize that we have sinned. I have sinned, Father. We don't seek you as we must. We don't always treasure you above all, nor seek you first and your kingdom and trust you with everything else. Lord, help us be humble and repent from our sins. Help us turn back to you every day and never take it lightly. Help us enjoy true fellowship with you and abide in you and dwell in your word daily. Give us true repentance and not only emotional remorse. Help us love you for who you are and help us live for the glory of your name. Help us do what you have called us to do and restoring us the joy of our salvation. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen.